0: Welcome to New Books and Communication Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Bierma. Television started as a dream of 19th century science fiction. It took its place in the 20th century home and became a fixture of family life and a transformative cultural force. Today, televisions are both less visible and more present than ever, thanks to screens on our walls and in our pockets. Chris Horrocks traces the cultural history of the television set in his book, The Joy of Sets, A Short History of the Television, published last year by Reaction Press. Horrocks is a filmmaker and professor of cultural history at Kingston University in London. I'm joined now by Chris Horrocks, author of The Joy of Sets. Chris, welcome. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So your work has been in cultural theory, in film and media history, and in design history. Is there a common thread throughout all of your work, throughout your career, and how does television fit into it?
1: I guess the thread is uh, changing technology, the way that humans uh, respond to and become a part of technology as as it arrives or as um, as it changes and as it's used. And I guess more lately I've focused, yeah, you're right, on design history and particular objects of technology and the intersection of technology and mass media, and the obviously obvious example is the uh, the TV or the television.
0: So what drew you to television? What, what uh, convinced you that this was uh, worthy of a book?
1: Well, I tell you, I was thinking just the other day someone asked me this, and um, and it really does go back to the um, the moon landing, and it's something uh, I it never occurred to me uh, until I was at college looking at TVs. as at the Royal College of Arts, so there's a lot of stuff about design. But uh, I had this sort of flashback to when I was a kid, and it was when um, Neil Armstrong landed on on the moon, and my dad got me out of bed, and it was in the middle of the night here over in the UK. I must have been about five or six, and I was brought downstairs and, and sat in front of this telly. It must have been three in the morning, and our TV... And I always remember this. It was designed exactly like a little spaceship. It had these four spindly legs, you know, and this unit on the top. It looked like a, moon, like a lunar lander, and that always struck me. So I remember just seeing, you know, Neil Neil Armstrong land on the moon, and this TV, and that always stuck with me. So it's a childhood thing, but through my studies and um, getting interested in the philosophy of technology, the TV drew me more and more because it was the the oddest object you could have in a room. Because it was both there and not there. And I was very interested in that kind of question. How is it we look at something without seeing it? And that's what kind of got me started.
0: Yeah, that's a tension that comes through throughout your book. um, Both that the television is something to be looked at. It has a physical presence. And at the same time, it's transparent. We're meant to look past it into uh, or through an image that it's displaying you write that television quote has the quality of being both an object and a screen an item of design to be looked at and a window to be looked through did you find that this was a tension that uh, ran throughout the history of television was it difficult for television to be both of these things or was television able to be both of these things at once and that's what makes it such a paradox
1: that's a great question. And it's always the challenge and the problem for TV. You see, what you've got is not just an object. You've got an object that's got to fit into an environment of other objects and certain received um, notions of what uh, a good design is and what a good home is. Um, so a TV is a piece of design, but it's a piece of technology. Uh, it's got, you know, it's got power running through. it. It's dangerous, okay? It's got insides which uh, are quite threatening and quite alien. And the idea of having those things fully exposed visually or even conceptually to a new audience, an audience for whom the TV was alien, was quite a uh, challenge. So you had to consider in the thirties when TVs were first introduced into the living room or the lounge or the parlour, they had to kind of fit in. And the first thing they had to do was work out, did they want to be seen? One way, of course, to make them acceptable was to disguise them. So therefore, they'd use all the veneers and the surfaces and the sort of wooden uh, surfaces of things like cocktail cabinets and, uh, you know, other um, cupboards and things like that. So it was always a problem. Uh, And and the problem changes later on when people become more comfortable with technology in the home. So the aesthetics, the look of it begins to change.
0: So let's go back into the 19th century where your book begins. You talk about some fantasy, some science fiction portrayals of uh, of what television would later become or be similar to. Um, can you describe some of the portrayals that caught your attention and what they got right and what they got wrong when you looked at what television turned out to be later on?
1: Well, that's right. You see, with the early portrayals of TV, we're talking about imagine, imaginings of television before the, before the invention but they, they had an idea, a rough idea of things like electromagnetism, physics, um, but this was mixed up with ideas of spiritualism, with notions of travel, colonialism, imperialism. So they had this, these, all these ingredients in place to tell stories in this new genre, which was uh, later called science fiction. So science fiction arrives in the you know, um, in the sort of late nineteenth century, and the TV becomes an object of of um, of the imagination uh, within that genre and What you get more often than not is the idea of this object which is quite comfortably fit into the victorian home and it's sort of it's, it's, a, it's a kind of play thing um, of, the, of the middle classes through which they can talk to their niece or nephew in Australia, or they can watch the opera at home and things like that. And of course, they, they kind of glossed over the technology. It was just a sort of sleight of hand of the way these images would arrive from the theatre into the home. And a lot of it was uh, uh, a lot of these obviously um, science fiction stories were in literature. They were written before they were uh, filmed. Uh, although, if you look at a French illustrator like uh, Robida, some of his illustrations are quite wonderful from the uh, later part of the 19th century, which show in, in sort of uh, in pen and ink form the, the ways that TV would become uh, integrated into society, usually to move information around or to uh, make links with faraway countries. So the idea, that sort of Jules Verne idea of travel and discovery, Um, and conquering the world became very much part of the idea of the TV, uh, early TV science fiction imaginary.
0: So you spent some time talking about the technological development of television, and you say that asking who invented television is the wrong question, or at least it can't be answered directly. Why is that?
1: Well... You could kind of answer it, but you have to be aware of the idea, the definition. You know, what is a television? Uh, for some people, uh, it's the idea of moving a, a still image. I mean, you tell, television means you know seeing from far away, and, and a lot of technologies could, were able to do that. Um, uh, certainly, the early forms of um, uh, visual telegraphy could do that. But it's the so you have to work out: is it a live image? Is it a moving image? Is the television fully electronic? Does it have moving parts? And so you can really begin to throw up the idea of who invented it. But also, again, when you look at the history of TV, as usual, it sort of it devolves to, you know, which country says they invented it. So, you know, UK will have um, Scott, Logie, Baird. There'll be um, Philo Farnsworth in the in the U- uh, USA. And so it goes. Um, Paul Nipkoff in Germany, Uh, and so there's a degree of nationalism, uh, national pride involved in saying who did it, and of course that keys into the idea of um, uh, 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 competitive, you know, competition, rivalries between institutions, individuals, people like RCA, BBC, uh, EMI, Marconi, so when you put that all into the mix, the question becomes harder to answer, but we could roughly say... It was invented or it was first demonstrated publicly, let's say, 1925 by Baird in Selfridges in London in 19, yeah, 1925, and maybe a year or two later by Farnsworth, who did the, arguably the first all-electronic TV with no moving parts in the States a couple of years afterwards. So it depends on how you look at it and what you define the TV as.
0: You describe what television was doing technologically at that time as dividing up the image and then reassembling it on a screen. Could you say more about how television actually worked? Or maybe another way of asking the question is, what was the biggest technological hurdle that had to be overcome in order for television to work?
1: Well, I guess, you know, it's it's turning um, photons into electrons and back into photons. In other words, it's taking energy. And moving it over space and reassembling like you say images and sound but you've got to, you've got to control the direction of these things as well so you needed something like uh, for example a cathode ray tube in other words you need a vacuum through which these particles will go in one direction only and to to i mean can you imagine to reconfigure a moving image you've got to you've got to beat the uh, acuity and the and the reflexes of the human eye so this thing has got to it's got to compose itself millisecond by millisecond. And the only way to do that, well, you could do it mechanically with these rotating discs and you have a little, uh, li- these little holes in a spiral form and they shoot the light over the image and, and they make the phosphors glow and your eye can retain those phosphors and they'll keep reassembling. But um, you could you could um, supersede that with the idea of sort of purely electromagnetic signals, and that, uh, signals and that's the idea of using magnets Okay, which they 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 spray this this, this the, the, the these photons over a surface. They catch the phosphors, they light up, your eye catches those and it does it again and again, line after line after line. Really, really quickly. That's the essence of what a TV is. There are different ways of getting there, and there are different emphases according to all these inventors we've talked about, but that's essentially it. It's moving, it's moving energy electromagnetically over space and time to reconfigure an, in, an image, and you can do that electromagnetically and mechanically, or usually a combination of both.
0: You write that at the outset of World War II, one of the biggest dreams for television was that it could be used militarily. It could be used as an instrument of war by a nation, by an army. What were some of the ways that that it was hoped that television could be used for war, and what did pan out and what didn't?
1: Well, I mean, I guess the one problem facing somewhere like the UK in the war was whether to use TV at all, because your your TVs, you've got... uh, You've got transmitters, and bombers can home in on those and use those to drop their own bombs on London. So the BBC just shut down TV broadcasting. In the States, of course, at the beginning of the Second World War, that wasn't an issue, and it wasn't through the war. OK, so you, you guys still had your um, in your TV industry. Uh, and, uh, and on the other side of it, Nazi Germany, well, one side was to use the TV as a propaganda tool. So what they wanted to do was get TVs in every, uh, not necessarily every home, Um, But in every um, sort of uh, there's a collective viewing parlours where injured German soldiers and the public could view the the quite limited uh, uh, propaganda uh, TV programming that's put on most through most of the war in Berlin uh, to the general public. On the other side, of course, uh, the British uh, pulled away from the TV for the public and they put the TV into um, into the RAF, Royal Air Force, and the army. Now TV there is perfect for things like reconnaissance and also for the idea of you yoke that to a missile you've got a kind of visually guided missile. Uh, in the uh, With the USA in the war in the Pacific they had the first um, TV controlled uh, flying bombs which would be sent out through the Marshall Islands and uh, could be uh, guided by someone in, in a nearby aircraft who's watching a TV and uh, flying remotely a plane or a a, a bomber into an enemy ship. Uh, Indeed, in Britain, we uh, were using uh, liberators packed with explosives, which were flown uh, by pilots in uh, nearby bombers into attack uh, German placements on the uh, on the French coast. So there are all kinds of ways that TV were used. Uh, Ranging from the idea of the propagandistic, you know, the idea of selling ideas to a population or uh, suspending the idea of the TV as a domestic product and turning it into a weapon of war for surveillance or for guided missiles and so forth.
0: I was really struck by that idea of, or by the use uh, for reconnaissance and guiding the missiles, because we think of drone warfare as a relatively recent invention. It was really striking to hear how much that had uh, developed, how much that was in existence uh, way back in World War II.
1: But it certainly was, and you get this strange, you look into that history a bit, and you see that and even today there's a kind of strange resistance of people to get involved with, to to attribute those skills of flying those TV-guided planes uh, at the same level as uh, as, uh, aircraft pilots, Um, because a lot of it is done remotely, it's done without direct threat to the pilot, it's done from a distance of miles, in some cases tens of miles, uh, and, and therefore, it's not treated at the same. But certainly, the history there goes way back beyond what we consider to be a, a recent invention. But it was there in the 1930s, and people like Zvorikin, uh, who worked with um, American TVs, was well ahead of the game in the 1920s, and selling this, this this sort of um, uh, technology to, to the to the American forces.
0: So after World War II, the focus of manufacturers turned to domesticating television as a consumer product. Uh, All those GIs returning home uh, were then asked to put the TV in their living rooms. And you say that, particularly in the United States, uh, what was promoted was a spiritual idea of the family gathering in the home around the television. Could you describe that idea and how it was promoted?
1: Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, the first thing you do after war is you want to... Get the women back into the home because they've been working in the factories, you know, Rosie the Riveter and all that. The GI's all come back, so you've got to, the American economy is really booming because of the war. But you've got to turn the focus back into domestic consumption, and the TV is, a, is, a, is, is, is the sort of the, the, the principal object of domestic consumption. The world comes into your living room uh, through that, so that's the centre and really in american culture from the late 40s into the 50s the entire home becomes organized around the tv you see all the adverts there and they're they're really you know interesting adverts to see how the tv experience structures family life so if you look at a typical advert you'll see dad sitting on the his, his easy chair with his pipe and his slippers and the kids on the floor in front of it and mum always standing to the side bringing in the you know the the newly invented tv dinner Um, we get to the strange uh, situation where uh, they they tried to um, sell um, televisions uh, embedded in cookers in the kitchen so the woman could watch tv not as a distraction from cooking but to follow cooking ingredients as she could so this whole division of labor uh, uh, through uh, of gender male female for kids and adults which goes on and then of course from the 50s onwards you've, you've got an excess of tvs so you've got to start marketing tvs as being ever so slightly different from other tvs so that so you have consumer lifestyle and consumer choice and that's when we start getting the you know with the invention of the teenager and the teenager's space we have the idea of portable tvs or tvs that could be taken out in the car or shown on the beach different different TVs for different occasions but always there's that tension in the american home about TVs are they should they be exposed to uh, the gaze from outside the living room should be should people be able to see you watching tv indoors that was still seen as not very socially desirable so the space of the tv while well, you had to have one it wasn't necessarily placed conspicuously for public consumption unlike in other countries such as brazil where it was considered rude to have a tv hidden from public view because other people on the street could not see it so all these kind of mores and customs and rituals based around tv but certainly in the states it was really seen as the lead technology in the home outside the kitchen that uh, brought the family together in a certain way and um, and you can look at also a lot of um, yeah, I mean, imagine in the 1940s and 50s, you've never watched a TV. So you're given manuals about how to watch television. And in in UK, it's so much more sort of polite that uh, uh, I was reading in, a, in, in some tract where um, they were saying it's very impolite to talk over the person talking on television because you should sit there you know, well-dressed and mindful of your manners to let them do their job. So you, it was like you were allowing the theater or someone special, a guest, into your living room, and you had to play proper, proper respect. So very, very different ways of approaching television.
0: But television did take its place in the home as a focal point of family gatherings. But you proceed to talk about... Concerns and anxieties uh, that the advent and that the uh, so-called invasion of television uh, brought about. Uh, you quote an author, Jerry Mander, who wrote, I believe, in the 1970s, four arguments for the elimination of television. Uh, can you explain what he was worried about, and uh, which one of the, which ones of those did he get right, and and what wasn't he seeing?
1: Well, I, I, yeah, you got you got to put that in in, in the context of 1960s, 1970s paranoia and there we are from the 50s onwards we we have another threat uh now you can you can you can materialize that threat as something like you know the russians okay this you know the soviet threat the red threat or aliens 1950 you can put those two things together we have these new merging sort of human sciences of psychology uh, motivational uh, research on why people do things and so we have you know inventions of terms like brainwashing thought control and that goes as much in uh, things like advertising and product design as it does in the idea of the, the the tv and its reception in the home so there's a whole culture there of this 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 sense of suspicion that there's someone selling us something, and it's subliminal, and we don't know we, why we want it, but we're buying it anyway. We're like these kind of consumer robots, happily consuming away, not knowing we're doing it. Jerry Mander, who's you have to look into his credentials, but uh, he 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 makes the claim that uh, TV is not just the standard thing. Is TV is bad for us culturally because it reduces, um, you know, the the sort of the bar in terms of. The idea of uh, how easy it is to acquire culture, you know, it's uh, the Jew sitting on the sofa just watching anything, a uh, couch potato, if you will. Um, but he's arguing more directly for the idea of almost a, a biological, uh, physiological impact, negative impact on the human frame. So he, and I've tried to track down some of his experiments, not with much success, I confess, but he would do things like he'd, he'd quote little known quite oblique papers about putting plants next to TVs or mice in cages next to TVs and, and the plants would start growing rot the wrong way and the mice's the mice tails would drop off and so forth so he's making these quite tenuous links between cancer and the television and that kind of remains because as you know that perhaps the the fear of electromagnetism and, and kind of waves and radiation that, 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 that permeates our idea of electricity in the household has been present for maybe a hundred years and you've got to consider this tv is dangerous you know it sits in the corner with you know, thousands of volts flowing through it and when tvs explode boy do they explode you know because or implode because of the uh the vacuum inside um, but what struck me really, the uh, you know p- putting gerrymander arguments aside, and I'm not really persuaded with any by any of them, is that um, when you look into, as I did, the actual incidents of TV-related injuries in the home, they're quite significant. Why? A TV, before they became light and flat screen, is a very very heavy object indeed. You know, full of glass and lead and whatnot, metal, and it's balanced on a cabinet or something, and it's front heavy, because the glass is all at the front. So if you get a child clambering up the TV, and grabbing hold of it, odds are the TV will fall down and onto the child. So there's so many incidences of, uh, um, and in the book I just list a lot of, uh, of, of various breaks and abrasions and contusions and things that happen uh, through the particularly American family home through the 60s and 70s. So... They advise getting one of these earthquake straps, which you would put on the back of a television and strap it to the wall or something, so it wouldn't topple forward. That really, um, with all respect to gerrymandering, is the most dangerous aspect of TVs, falling.
0: So in addition to these literal and physical dangers, you talk about artistic critiques of television as a cultural force, as a tool of enforcing conformity. And you write about different responses and critiques that that raised. Uh, One of the most arresting images in this book is of, I don't know what to call it, an installation or a performance uh, called Media Burn by a group called Ant Farm in 1975 in San Francisco. Uh, Can you describe what this was and what it was trying to say?
1: Well, that's, that's a great question. I'm not sure I can answer it because I'm not sure they knew what they were trying to say. But if you take that, you know, from the late 60s and 70s, you have this huge explosion in 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 non-gallery art and as you say you could call it installational performance or or uh, the 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 term at the time was a kind of a happening you know that's a kind of term in new york and la but that kind of artwork which was transient often quite destructive often quite auto destructive uh, in fact um sort of media burn and farm that 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 kind of event which is a brief well how can you say it, it was a it was a, a ziggurat a kind of pile of tvs which they set light to and drove a customized i can't remember what car it was now cabriolet or ford uh, at speed uh, they added sort of science fiction size uh, fins to the car highly unstable and drove it at speed through this thing it's be, it's been filmed uh, photographed, and it became a sort of a almost mythical moment in the idea of, if you like, a performed high-velocity critique of the baleful influence of TV as a kind of passive, a passive uh, spectacle uh, foisted on on consumers, um, which had been refused and kind of resisted by and destructed through this uh, sort of radical arts community in California. And there's lots of examples of that in Europe as well. A lot of the art at the time, as this technology like TV comes on board, either tries to use TVs in radical ways or tries to destroy the idea of TV as a mass organized spectacle. And that's right in there in the early 70s with the artwork you describe.
0: And the photo of this event is really striking because it catches the car at the moment of impact or mid-impact, the car striking this wall, this bank of televisions. You have a lot of vivid images in this book of different types of television sets uh, throughout history, and uh, the variety and the artistic... Uh, merit in in many cases is quite striking. uh Tell me about looking at and finding these uh photographs and I take it you think that the television set has been neglected as a designed object as a cultural artifact
1: yeah i think um i mean it's a real it's fascinating to have discovered all those images i mean so many i i i i hadn't realized and so many surprises um And as you said at the beginning, there's a tension there in the in the design itself. And there's so many forces around the design of the TV that you could imagine, say, a TV uh, designed at the end of the Second World War in the U.K., doesn't have many we don't have many materials to use it's got to be very simple it's got to be sort of legible to a public that's not familiar with that sort of design then you get to the 50s and you get something like plastics you know so plastics can be formed contoured then of course you get these outside factors like the space race all right as i said earlier the interest in aliens and ufos and roswell and so there's a whole new visual language that comes in from um, stage left, you know, which could be to do with the idea of the imagined flying saucer or the spaceman, space woman's helmet. Um, you get uh, in the 1970s with the arrival of minimalism, if we go back to art, the idea of the kind of anonymous object, you know, the blank black box you know the black box so it's like an object that doesn't have any cultural reference or resonances at all it's absolutely zero in terms of connotation uh so the design of the tv has to sort of you know it does react to the idea of you know, increasing miniaturization. We have the transistor. Things get smaller. Things get lighter. Things get uh, uh, miniature, more transportable. But at the same time, we have all these metaphors that are running through that seem to impinge on the idea of the TV itself. Um, And then we we, we reach the 1990s. Everything kind of just goes big, gray or black. Uh, And all that kind of fantasy and reference seems to be expunged it disappears and we're left with a kind of standard tail end of tv design until the cathode ray tube becomes obsolete as you know in the last 20 years and then the tv design changes again because we think well now it's flat what do we do with it you know do we want to make, could we keep it as a big object in the corner or should we put it on a wall and then there's a whole new series of design uh, questions there so that's really the kind broad narrative of the history of the design of the tv
0: object so now that we do have flat screens now that the cathode ray tube is obsolete uh, as you said television kind of is absorbed into the wall or into a handheld device in our pockets has television disappeared how completely has it vanished as an object
1: yeah well i suppose you have to say well where was it before it disappeared and i always kind of say it wasn't anywhere particular, so it's hard to trace its disappearance. It always wanted, it always phrased itself around disappearance, but now we've kind of got it for real. And um, so what, what choices are we left with as consumers? You know, one of them is to disguise TVs in terms of flatness. So there are examples in the books that TVs can be switched into being used as a mirror or to show your family photos or to show other uh, landscape and so forth or to show just to to look like a wall. So there it's become more chameleon like in, in that respect. And as you said, yeah, TVs diverge and they converge. They go into other media, or media coming to them. So sometimes, you know, you you could use your flat screen like like a computer screen, downloading and chatting and and, and two way uh, communication things like that. TV's gone in every di- direction. The only thing we do know is that what is left from cathode ray tubes uh, from those old TVs, there's this kind of ghost, this, this long tail of TVs that are still out there. At millions and millions of them uh, in landfill sites and the rest of it and the real problem is there is what do you do with those old TVs because they ain't going away you know that there has they have to disappear in a, in a new concern which is ones of sustainability and ecology so that's one of the big questions
0: yeah you write that in 2010 alone there were 23 million television sets that were discarded and only 5 million I don't know if that's 5 million out of those 23 million or an additional 5 million sets were recycled. So literally millions of sets just in one year that were thrown out and uh, now now they're all physicality. There's no looking through them and they have a very tangible and very toxic effect environmentally.
1: That's right. I mean, you just list all the chemicals and the uh, you know, uh, elements that are in those TVs and that, that cannot easily be, you, you can't bury it in a hole because there, those things will leach out, you know, these leads and arsenic and then the rest of it. Uh, and so, one of the solutions, of course, is to ship them abroad to places which, where economically it's viable to still do these things, but that's changing already, so where, whereas a lot of them have gone to China, that's not so much the case anymore. So each country has its problem with its TVs. There are stories, of course, of TVs of recycling the plastics and turning these into um, uh, fab, uh, material for to make roads and things like that. So you might be driving down a TV at some point and not know it, so TVs might turn up as as something else. And that's another kind of strange invisibility that hopefully, maybe, they they come back into the the, the sort of cradle-to-cradle production line and turn into something new uh, to be consumed again.
0: You quote a fascinating report from 2013 that says that the family is gathering again around the television screen now that there's a big flat screen up in the living room or whatever room. Uh, the family is gathered there, and they're all watching it to some extent. But So there's there are echoes of the 1950s of that ideal family portrayal. But the difference now is that it's not the only screen in the room. So what's similar about the picture now, about the scene now of the family gathering, and what's different?
1: I guess if you were to take a photo, you know, still a photo of a family around the TV, yeah, the kids might be on the... Uh, on the on the on the carpet the, the dad might be there maybe with his vape uh the mum might not be standing in the doorway with her um uh, tv dinner ready for them but if you, i think if you focus zoomed in on that photo you might find that the kids are texting someone or because they can all do it one hand practically not looking from what i see these days um the dad might the the, the, the dad might have some um ipad or something like that and the mum might have something else so you would have within that within that kind of gaze of looking at the tv a kind of mode of distraction where people aren't glued to the tv i mean and you can take that back as well because the tv was seen as uh, different from the idea of going to the cinema the cinema you're in a you're in darkness just attached to the screen, just looking at it. With TV, it's always been about fragmentation, about distraction, adverts coming in, people coming into the room. It's pretty rare that people actually watch TV in a sustained manner. Uh, so this is just, if you, if you like, a sort of logical outcome of, of the idea of this distracted distracted gaze, that everyone can look away, um, they can fill in the bits they've missed with TV. The younger generation are very good at this kind of mosaic form of engagement where they can they can multitask as I think they call it and move between states so in a sense while the TV is disappearing kind of people are flitting in and out of consciousness with the TV at the same time because they've got all these other distractions going on and that's how people compile uh, information not as just this linear message from a a tube but from the idea of these fragments uh, almost by osmosis through the skin
0: So then my last question is, where does this go next? Having looked at over a century of the history of the development of television, does that give you any insight into where television goes? Or if television can't be said to be an entity or an object anymore, uh, what comes next for the role of screens in our lives?
1: Yeah, you can tell I sort of shied away from trying to answer that question. (laughs) Because one thing I have learned is the minute you... Like all these things I read about, where, the, where, you know, in the 1920s they're talking about the future of TV, this, the future of TV, that, and they're all kind of wrong. You know, they didn't know that there'd be these huge corporates involved in it and these big companies, Sony selling these big things. And they certainly, well, they might, flat screen was anticipated in the Victorian era, but the reality is quite different. So I don't know. I mean, I do think that there is, the next phase is that what they call the post-human phases where maybe the tvs will be closer to us or in us there be we know these virtual goggles and things like that they're 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 sort of on the way in now and uh, there may be some form of tv which is more mobile which is more uh worn more integrated um and uh but again, you could argue that's just the stuff of a science fiction projection. So we, we don't know. But you can bet your bottom dollar that there are people working on that. And usually these things are planned 15, 20 years in advance. So they're probably there on a designs table and, and they probably will appear in the next 10 years. But whether we get to know about them in beforehand through the secrecy and so, uh, so forth is, is another question. So I think we just have to
0: tune in 10 years and see where we are. Well, Chris Horrocks, the book is The Joy of Sets. It's fun to uh, read up on this history and to look at all these photographs of the different kinds of television sets there were and to take a close and critical look at the role television has played culturally. So, Chris, thanks for your time today. Enjoyed speaking with you.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a great pleasure.
0: Thank you. Chris Horrocks is the author of The Joy of Sets, A Short History of the Television, published by Reaction Press. Horrocks is a filmmaker and professor in the School of Critical Studies and Creative Industries at Kingston University in London. His previous books include Cultures of Color, Visual, Material, Textual, published in 2012, and Marshall McLuhan and Virtuality, published in 2000. I'm Nathan Bierman. You've been listening to New Books in Communication Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.